Yesterday is history. Tomorrow is a mystery, but today is a gift. It is not our abilities that show what we truly are. It is our choices. Hello and welcome to Jen Taylor Rerouting, where being rude is never acceptable, but sarcasm is welcome and swearing isn't always a bad option. Let's get started. Uh, today on Moms Running It, I'd like to welcome Diana Jones of Kinsey Consulting. And Diana, how are you today? I'm doing excellent. How are you? Fantastic. So first, I want to talk a little bit about your business. Tell me a little bit about it. Oh, okay. So I provide uh, consulting and coaching services for individuals and businesses. So basically to get to the shortcut of the answer, I help businesses get stronger on their foundation and all their business requirements and compliance so that way they can grow and have a solid strategy moving forward rather okay. than, yeah, go ahead. And then for individuals? For individuals, I do one-on-one -on -one coaching to basically help them. Keep going. And I know this because you were my individual coach. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. How did that a uh, technical? Yeah, I'm sorry. I had a technical issue, but we're going to keep plugging through. Um, Basically coaching, what I do is I help a person take, uh, take action and level up. Yes, and I have to say you were very, very good at it. Um, I've had, I hired a life coach years ago because I kind of felt like I didn't know I had lost my job. Um, I felt like it was a good opportunity to transition into something different. And, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. And it was helpful, but not nearly as helpful as you were. So that was really fantastic. And I have seen you in action with businesses also. And tell me a little bit about the background that you had in how you start, because you started your own business, which is fantastic and I love. But what was your background before that? Because it was like 24 years. My background is in social services. I was a frontline worker for the welfare programs. And I evaluated eligibility for the requirements for the programs to help out families. So they needed cash assistance, medical, um, any other supplemental benefits. I was the one that accepted the application, evaluated the, the information on there, compared it to the requirements, and then you were either eligible or not. Through that, um, you, you kind of have to work with individuals of all different variety, different you know backgrounds, different situations, and it does become more of a coaching session when you're evaluating program requirements. So, it just kind of springboarded from there. I found that I truly enjoyed um, that job. I loved working with people and even helping getting them to a small milestone from being unemployed to employed was just absolutely amazing. So I don't know, it, it just kind of um, cult, you know, cultivated and nurtured from that. And I took steps throughout my career to help build on that and then I decided one day I wanted to grow up and have my own business. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way to put it. But what I love about that and why I bring that up is because um, social services, whether you've had the opportunity to be involved with them or not, the entire welfare system is, I would, I would personally call it a little broken and it tends to have a stereotype of being difficult to deal with either the people within it or the people trying to get services. and. Um, you really excelled and you took on some of the hardest projects when it was a project or a program that other people did not want to, to deal with at all. You were the one that raised your hand and said, I'd like to tackle that. And so I think that kind of set you up for running your business perfectly. And there's never a situation you're going to encounter that's worse than something you already have. I, I would agree with that. And it, it, it started, um, my state career started when I was a data entry person. I would take all the information uh, from the eligibility workers and put it into a system 
that, you know, just spit out data in, data out. And that's basically what it was. Well, through my interactions with my coworkers, you know, that stereotype goes in deep. It's not just the recipients and the applicants that are stereotyped, it's the workers as well. And I would say within the handful of what I saw as to be that next level where I wanted to be, uh, my, my workers, they were the majority, I felt like they were very um, hardened. They were very sad. It was very difficult to watch how they communicated with people that I felt that were, would rather be you know, anywhere anywhere other than on the other side of the desk. And um, because if you've never had the opportunity to apply for any type of financial assistance at a state or a government level, there is no such thing as privacy. Everything is out on the table. So you have to answer very, very intimate questions. And I saw patterns pop up really fast when I would make my rounds, collecting documents, dropping off documents, and how workers were treating their clients. And to tie, to circle back into that, um, I gravitate towards the most challenging um, program or process. I think I saw maybe one or two workers out of probably maybe every 50 that actually conveyed sincerity, genuine you know, concern. So I knew that I wanted to promote. I was gonna study, test, and um, try to get myself on as an eligibility worker. And I was not gonna be that worker. And I bring that up because it parallels my experience in foster care. So I haven't been the birth parent who's losing a child, but um, there are often extenuating circumstances and the workers and the foster parents tend to be a little jaded same sort of parallel thought process and action. And also it's a lot about labeling people and um, just, just our attitude in that situation. You were the worker, so you were the one that seemed like you were in control. I was a foster parent and then I trained foster parents. So I worked in two different, in two different ways or coming at it from two different angles. And, and that's sad to me that we see so much of that because I saw the same thing. Now, I really do have to put out there that I do believe that it's a survival mechanism to be on the front line. You hear a lot of things uh, that just kind of stick with you and in, in your goal, in your gut and your soul. And um, it's not an easy job that you can walk away from and leave work at work and then go home and interact with your personal life. So. I understand what we do. Um, I just feel like there needs to be an awareness and that's what I wanted to bring to that. So I'm, I didn't know it then, but I had many years. I was a frontline worker for 10 years and that's, that's a long time. That's an old worker for that's, being in That's true. <laughs> so you and I um, met each other and we both wanted to start our own businesses doing completely different things, but coming from similar places, which I think is interesting. And um, as a female, I would say, I'm the typical touchy-feely, warm, fuzzy, emotional, everyone needs a hug, and you're the more analytical. And so I, uh, I think instead of seeing your weaknesses, you find people who have those as strengths and you capitalize on them, which is what I wanna, I, I really can't state enough as a coach how amazing you were and how you looked at things in such a different way than I did. And um, so I'm kind of, I just wanna pimp you out. So people now hire you with the volume of experience that you have in helping people implement systems and processes and kind of streamline things and not waste time, which is a big thing you did for me in my process. So yes, we'll put, we'll put all those links. So, but now we're going to talk about, so that is a struggle. Starting your own business is a struggle and that that's one thing, but I want to backtrack now. Let's go back. You were in a place when you were working and your issue was it. Part of your issue was your weight. So now let's go back to your story, um, not the business side of it, but the more personal side of it. And tell me, tell me that story. 
oh, okay. So where would you, how far back do you want to <laughs> Well, I don't know because I, I don't know with you if it's something that started with your family when you were a kid or if it's something that snowballed later. I know there were things going on with your mom and I don't want to tell the story for you because I do know some about it. So I want, I really want that to come from you. So where do you want to start it? I'll start back in the, in the very beginning of my adult years, which is when I, of course, turned 18. I knew I wanted to conquer the world and just try to, try to hit the ground running and uh, you know, live life. Um, we, I moved to uh, the area when I was 18 with my mom. My mom's a single mom raising two girls. My dad had passed away when I was 10 of uh, lung cancer. So my mom kind of went through her own coping mechanism and which led to a very very eclectic not boring um, childhood for the rest of my childhood um, so when I was 18 I was ready to go be my own person were you the oldest sibling did you say yes yeah, okay I am so um, you know with the world ahead of me I wanted to, you know, travel, do everything. Um, uh, we relocated in Reno. I wanted to get a good job, save up some money, and um, had to break ground, which was very uh, humbling to me because as an 18-year-old, you think you know everything, so you can do everything. And I was so disheartened that I had to land a job as a bus person. <laughs> Welcome to the world. I was so sad. I wanted to. I wanted to be front desk. I wanted to do all these different cool jobs, and I got a bus person job, which was awesome um, because I, that's where I met my husband. Um, so about two weeks after landing in town, I met a boy. We ended up dating, and then I ended up marrying him. So through that process, um, my mom was diagnosed with cancer, with breast cancer. So very, very short little time of, you know, goals and inspirations, and then it went back into survival mode. So I'd say um, probably dealing with that didn't help, um, you know, because, uh, uh, you know, just you kind of tack on that stress and, you know, body weight issues start happening. Um, I was uh, pregnant shortly after, uh, actually I was pregnant, well, you know, when I got married, I was like six weeks pregnant. Um, how nobody, soon, how nobody, soon did you and Nick get married after you met? Because that, that was pretty whirlwind. Yeah, probably about a year and a half after. Okay, you just, I remember, I guess I remember Nick saying when he was driving over to pick you up, he knew, he just knew you were it. And <laughs> yeah. you were more like, look buddy, we need to wait this out. So I didn't realize it was a year and a half. Yeah, so that analyzing went all the way, way back. <laughs> yeah, you started processes way back at 18. Yeah, right, way back in the day. Yeah, that was the snowstorm of 1990. <laughs> so you were six weeks pregnant, nobody knew, of course, nobody knew. when you got married. Yeah, but then also my mom had just finished going through a round of uh, chemo. She had gone through her treatments of her first round of breast cancer. So um, the weight issues happened. Um, the catalyst was, you know, pregnancy. I was figuring I was eating for two, might as well go all out. So I gained about 50 pounds, lost a pinch from having the kid, and then ended up keeping and harboring the rest of the, the weight. So just cycle through another pregnancy, gained an, another amount of weight, lost a little bit after that. And so it never really went back. Back to, you know, when I was, quote, fat at 18. I wish I were that fat again, really. <laughs> All right. I look back at pictures because we're about the same age. And I think um, in our generation, the kids that we that were called fat, I've seen pictures and like they would not maybe, maybe be called chubby right now. I mean, really not. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But throughout that whole time, you know, weight, Weight has always been, I was never considered to be at an ideal weight. Okay. So you and Nick are newly married. Um, you kind of went from living at home to being married and living with another person. I mean, there wasn't a lot of downtime in between. How long have you guys been married though? Uh, it will be 25 years this year. 
See, there you go. And two babies, two boys, um, and gaining weight and your mom going through breast cancer. So keep, keep going. Well, her battle continued um, throughout the whole period of, you know, me raising my family, going through my career change and all that other stuff. She uh, did three rounds of battle with cancer and uh, lost her battle about 11, um, 11, 12 years ago. Okay. Yeah. Now your weight continued to creep up over that time. And it was, it was an 11 year battle too. I mean, that's a lot of emotional stress and family stress. And did you continue to put on weight? Yes. I continued the cycle of gain 20 extra pounds from my base obese weight to losing 30 from crash diets and then getting off those diets and then creeping back up. Um, there were a lot of signals throughout that period of time that I should have been paying attention to that I didn't catch on until well, until I was well into that, 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 that trap already, which, um, the cycling of weight loss, weight gain, not paying attention to what I was eating, how I was taking care of my health, uh, led to um, diabetes, type two, um, being morbidly obese. Um, I think my highest weight was when I stopped tracking it number-wise on the scale, when I stopped quantifying it was about 240. So I'm pretty sure that, you know, give a good 10, 10 plus above just for a bad day. And um, so type two diabetes, high blood pressure, um, uh, high cholesterol. And how tall are you though? Because when you say 240, I'm five foot nine. So I am so tall, I'm five three. Yeah, wow, I, did, I wouldn't have given you that much. <laughs> Us tall people think you guys are just really short, apparently, I don't know. So you're five foot three, you're this, you're petite. You're, you're this cute little good things come in small packages. <laughs> You know, I'm compact. You're <laughs> compact. Okay. So <laughs> you tried pretty much every diet. You mentioned crash diets. I did. I took anything that hit the market. I did. I even did the, the Fen Fen, you know, whatever FDA stuff. I mean, I really kind of hit everything. So I think that that's very common. And that's why I want to hit on that. First of all, weight gain and obesity is becoming more rampant in the US than ever before. Um, and crash diets and fads and magic pills and eight balls and wands and you name it, people will try it. And that's, like you said, you gain, you lose 30, you know, get right back up, but the scale continued to climb. And so even though sometimes you were crash dieting and losing it, you'd gain it back plus some. So what was the moment? When did that shift? Well, I had already been on um, a medication called metformin, which is supposed to regulate your um, blood sugar levels. And there's a dosing step process. And I had been increased in dosage um, to help you know, keep those numbers under control and was doing labs every six months just to make sure that um, I was not out of whack with my sugar levels. And the reason why they want to keep an eye on that is because they need to know if there's a time where they need to introduce insulin shots to help you manage and control. And then you also get secondary diseases that springboard from diabetes. So they monitor you very closely and then they monitor, they adjust your medication accordingly. So I was in on one of my um, visits and my blood pressure was climbing. My uh, cholesterol was getting higher and that was being put on statins. Um, so I'm sad, I'm depressed. I'm like, I've got to get this off. I've got to work at it. Um, I go back for my six month checkup later where I thought I was doing pretty good and the numbers were not helping at all. And we actually had that cold conversation of, let's go ahead and order you some, you know, insulin and let's take a look at that option. And I was so disheartened and upset that, um, and I've always had great doctors on, on board. 
I asked her to please not send in that prescription quite yet. I just needed a moment to kind of figure things out. <clears throat> I had gone to my doctor's appointment on a lunch break and I remember crying and getting so angry, like, like seeing red angry that by the time I got to work, I was done. I said, that's it. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm going to do something. And so I decided that that's when I wanted to live because I really felt, um, and I don't wish this upon anybody. And I hope that nobody really knows that feeling, but I kind of think they do where you are scared of dying. You actually feel like you have one foot down that steep slide going towards an early grave and didn't want to go there. I had already lost my mom, didn't want to do it. Okay, so this was after your mom had passed away. And again, you lost your dad at 10 from lung cancer. So you have two parents you lost from cancer, from diseases that they didn't have as much control over. I mean, breast cancer, I get my mammogram every year and hope, you know, please don't let me, don't, don't find anything. Because it's not like I could eat better and that will completely take care of it. They died from things they didn't have control over, but you did have control. Correct. So what did you do? Well, I did um, what uh, I felt that was a good solution for me. And I had previously looked at um, weight loss surgery well before I got to this you know, boiling point. And I kind of slept it off to the side because I felt like that was vanity. It was just a way, it was another easy out for me. And then I also felt how I would be judged by others because there's a lot of judgment that comes with um, your choices and how to take care of yourself. But remember, I'm mad, I'm sad, I'm scared. My kids are young, I don't wanna, I don't wanna die young. And um, so I went back and I looked up surgery options and I found a, an excellent doctor in the area, a surgeon, and I attended a seminar and I never looked back. From the moment I made that decision, I did everything I possibly could to not be an exemplary patient. That was not my goal, but it was my goal to prove to me that I can actually invest in me and that I can live and I can move forward. And so that's what I did. I jumped on their program, went through extensive testing. They test you from your metabolic standpoint to um, psychological. I had to go see a, a therapist to see if I was in the right frame of mind. I had to go through nutrition counseling. I had to do a lot of pre-work. It was a six to eight month pre-work. It was not a quick, easy fix. So, now, what, what surgery did you end up getting? I had the gastric bypass. Okay, because I know um, that there are some different ones. Yeah, there's one, there are several ones, ones that you can place a, a band around your stomach just to minimize um, food intake. I actually did the complete bypass because, well, what that does is it actually takes the, um, it minimizes the amount of um, intake of food that you can handle, and it does bypass the, the, the digestion process. Um, to an extent, however, there were um, there are studies that showed at that time that it would immediately remedy the type 2 diabetes. So I knew, so if you were to think of the diabetes as being a gun with a bullet held to my temple, I knew that I could disarm the weapon and get that, get that off and away and then fix from there if that makes sense. Right. And then, go, and then move forward. I felt like I was being held hostage by my condition. That's because, an excellent way to describe it. Because I really did try. I mean, and I think that's the other judgment is people are like, well, why don't you just, you know, shut your mouth and, you know, lose weight. It's like, that would be amazing. But the sad part about it is, is that when you're on medications that alter your metabolism, it makes it extremely difficult for you to lose weight. I was exercising, I was watching calories, but I had, I had medication on board that was fighting my, my proactive approach. So, so you was, had the surgery when? I had surgery in December, 2009, December 16th, 2009. 
And tell me from that point moving forward, what was that like? There's a huge recovery. Just to go into that a little bit. Well, I think I was in a really good place mentally um, and emotionally. I knew I was going to be down um, over the holidays. And you go into the surgery, if you do your job right as, a, as, a, as a, the patient, there should be no surprises. And uh, so I went in. I knew that I was going to feel like crap a couple of days, um, which actually I didn't. I had a really good um, speedy recovery. Um, I was in the hospital, not a couple of moments of, you know, <laughs> really dark moments, um, but that's a whole different story. But mo once I recovered from that, um, they want you up and walking as fast as you can, or as soon as you can, not as fast as you can, but as soon as you're able to. So the gal, the nurse, after um, those dark moments where we ended up having a couple of altercations, she was such a beautiful soul and helped me get out of bed, helped me walk and do laps. And once I realized I wasn't gonna fall and pass out from doing laps, there was no stopping. So I did my laps, I was discharged, got home, recovered, was a little bit tired, but as the energy levels rose, I walked. And then I walked more. And then I walked more. And then one day I got this crazy ass idea that I was going to try to run. <laughs> <laughs> and I did. And, and, I, I, and I met you. That's how we met. I know. So <laughs> metaphorically, literally, I just have not stopped since I got out of that hospital bed. So how you said you were about 240. Yeah. So how fast, when did you start weighing yourself again? How fast did weight start coming off? The weight started coming off relatively um, steady, which is um, a little different. I mean, some people lose it very fast. Um, it's a malnutrition approach. So your body's not getting the same type of nutrients it was before. So it could be considered like a fast where um, it's rapid weight loss. So you just have to be very, very careful. I was lucky that my body did not have any issues with the surgery. Um, it didn't have any issues with its new programming. And um, I steadily lost like two, three pounds a week. It was slow um, because you think it's the magic pill. Still not. You got to work at it. So I, I exercised, I ate properly, and um, yeah, so nice and steady. And I've lost over um, 100, I lost over 100 pounds, about 100, really? yeah. So you've talked about how even at 18, you were never this super skinny person. Um, did you have a goal weight? Was that hard for you to figure out? You'd also had two kids in the mix. Did you know where you wanted to be? Was it a size thing, a way you felt or looked? Oh, well, that's, that's the very interesting part because my ideal weight when I was going through my evolution of obesity, I uh, always wanted to go back to when I was 18, when I was quote unquote fat. And even then I was about 10 to 15 pounds overweight. I mean, I'm, I'm Puerto Rican, Cuban, Italian. There's nothing skinny about me. So, you know, um, even at 18 in small jeans, I had some, you know, hips going on. So I thought if I can always get back to that, if I can always squeeze back into that size jeans, well, through the process of dealing with the pre-surgery requirements, um, I had to change that mindset and I had to go for healthy, which... Of course, I always had a number in mind, but I always wanted to go towards being healthy because that was the whole point. I wanted not to die young. I wanted to be around and I want to be healthy. So that brought me down to pretty much within three pounds of my goal weight when I, when I had set that out. So. so what you thought you wanted to be was pretty accurate. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just wondering, I'm asking that question because I'm wondering how skewed, when you are really heavy, how skewed your thought process is on being small or being healthy. It's very um, skewed. It, yeah. It, and to be honest, it doesn't change. It really doesn't change. I've been very steady for the last six years within 10 pounds of um, my lowest weight. Um, and your body knows exactly where it needs to um idle at so to speak with weight 
um, anything below that, you have to really work aggressively hard. You know, like boxers, wrestlers, things like that, you have to make a cut weight. Um, I think our body has um, several um, levels, like a thermostat, and it knows. It knows what's, what's good for you, and mine was at 135. So anything below that, it's going to be a struggle for me. Um, it's going to be very aggressive. So I work within about 10 pounds of that. Anything above that, then I start saying, hey, maybe I should put that in a French fry down <laughs> and pick up the celery stick. But um, I think, uh, I don't think the, the mentality, once you've experienced that type of um, physical, emotional, and mental trauma of obesity, I don't think you're ever, you always have to battle for a healthy perspective. And I guess that's what I was curious about. Um, all of us, I, weight hasn't been one of my struggles. It hasn't been, a, I mean, it's, I think it's everyone's struggle, even if it's not a big struggle. And uh, it's hard to, and my number and your number could be totally different at different heights, but it's also, it is, it's where your body idles, it's where you feel the most comfortable. And it's hopefully you comparing yourself against you and not airbrushed fashion models. Well, it, and that's part of the daily struggle. It really is because I, you said something very interesting just now, which um, is that hopefully I'm comparing myself to me and not to, you know, that uh, airbrushed model. Well, there are those comparisons that, you know, every, you know, female and male to, you know, they, they look at what is considered to be healthy and fit. It's not realistic all the time. But um, to be honest, I, when I compare myself to me, I have to really fight not to look at the old me. I see the old me. I see the old me all the time. So I currently am at 146 pounds. I'm very active, uh, training for, you know, uh, races. And there are parts of me that I look and I'm like, damn, you know, I worked really hard to get that. That is awesome. I love it. And I can walk by and see my reflection in the mirror and say, oh my God, I'm so fat, I'm so bad. I, what the heck, look at that. Did you see that roll? Did you see that, oh, and then, so you have to, even comparing yourself to yourself, it's very difficult. Right, so, and that's very, very true. Um, and I remember one time, so I, I met you when you were, for, kind of in when you were first running. I mean, it wasn't nine years ago, but pretty early on. And my perception of you is the same. I didn't notice that weight loss because I don't think we're as critical of other people as we think. I always think people are gonna notice if this extra five pounds. People don't give a crap about your extra five pounds. I mean, they really don't. Or, I mean, I had to literally go from hair down my back to shaving my head for someone to notice that I changed my hair. People don't notice the way we think that they're going to notice. Exactly. So I remember when we were on the same running team and we had to get, we got clothes and you made a comment to me. You said, I can't be a size six. That's not possible. And I looked at you and I'm like, of course you're a size six. Like, don't be dumb. <laughs> But it was it was just an out loud moment of you battling that internal because I mean I never looked at and thought I wonder what size Diana is because we don't do that to people like we think people are doing to us. But when you said it out loud, I remember thinking, where did that come from? And it was just you self evaluating. Right, and, and it's, you're always doing that too because when I go clothes shopping, you know, um to pick out regular, what I call civilian clothes, or if I'm at a race and I get a, a, a t-shirt, I'm always looking at, well, gosh, what size do I need? You know, I need to get a large or an extra large because that's all I've known. You don't have that perspective all the time. And it, it just takes a lot of work to, to continue to keep a healthy, um, positive, you know, perspective on, on yourself and on life. So it's, it's a day-to-day -day thing. Right. Now, you were training and um, I've done running events. I've never run a marathon, so I don't want to. I've trained for three, so I've run up to 23 miles, but I, that just made me realize I don't want to. 
<laughs> um, so I do half marathons and I've done sprint triathlons, which are pretty short, condensed little. Let's give an example, 800 meter swim, uh, 18 mile bike ride and a 5k, which is 3.1 miles. You decided, I think I'll try and for, train for an, uh, an Ironman, which is a two and a half, 2.4 mile swim. There's no, there's no meters involved when you're going that far. Uh, it's biking. What, how much are you biking? 112. 12, 112. And then you run a marathon. After. Right. Because. So it's 140.6 miles total. Now, you also had something else going on in there. And that's huge. An Ironman is so much more than I am ever willing to take on. So I, I mean, just the training kudos. Did you decide to do the Ironman before or after the issue with your thyroid and talk about both of those things? Oh, actually. Okay. So um, I was kind of challenged before, before Ironman ever came or triathlon ever came on my radar. My biggest goal, and I was currently training for the Napa Valley Marathon. So I had done plenty of 5k races. Um, I think the half half marathon was, you know, huge a distance for me. And someone had sent out an email and said, if you're receiving this email, and it was a, a, a common contact of ours, it said, if you're receiving this email, this uh, Ironman event is coming to our area and it would be great for you to participate because if you're receiving this, I trust that you, I have faith that you can do this. And I looked at my email and I was like, I was added on totally wrong. I don't even know. This was a mistake. How could I ever be added on to this email? And um, I'll keep the language clean. So I did say, <laughs> I did say a couple of explicit, you know, opinions out loud. And then I kind of had this panic attack, like I can't even get to my, my marathon, you know, in a right frame of mind, let alone what the heck is all this? So your listeners and you probably already know that, you know, that's a huge challenge that was put on my plate. I felt like I was personally challenged and already going through what I've gone through in my life. I thought, why not? So just as a caveat to that, I did not know how to swim. I've never biked, but I didn't know how to run. So I figured I had one out of three down. <laughs> right. And how hard can it be to add the other two? <laughs> and I always joke, like, why be good at one thing when you can be mediocre at three? That's the triathlon. Exactly. So, um, so then I, I was about a year out from that. And um, so then I had to, I accepted the challenge. I paid for my entry, which once you do that, there's no going back. And my, my philosophy is, is if it scares the crap out of you, you need to pull the trigger and do it and then backfill the details later. So I did. And then I sprinkled in some races throughout the year to help me prepare and then training. So I added all that extra stress um, emotionally, mentally um, to prepare. And then I kind of got kicked in the gut because I went to my, uh, as you know, now I get my labs done all the time. So I had something that popped up on my thyroid um, that my doctor said, hey, let, you know, come on in and we want to talk about this it's you have some uh, uh unusual readings so i did she said let's just be proactive and do a a, a scan she says because um uh, i told her i go yeah you know throughout my life i've always had a you know what doctors say an enlarged thyroid she said oh sweetie you have a very generous thyroid it's your I, I can see it within your neck so she showed me and i'm like oh well generous that's that's me you know just i'm a giver and um, I said, hey, you know, by the way, I said, I got this, you know, lymph node that won't go away. And can we just image everything at that time? And she put everything on the radar. Fast forward through some biopsies and some scans to the surgeon's consultation. And he pulled me aside and uh, said, okay, we need to do surgery. And um, you have suspicious um, imaging. And we don't know with thyroid until we actually get in there. And so there's no way to know until we actually take it out. So I'm sitting there thinking, okay, let's do this after September on my Ironman. 
And I think this was November the year prior. And he said, um, he said, if you were my daughter, I would not, I would not want you to wait more than six months. And I told him, I said, you say that to all your female patients. That's not, that's not even cool. So he took me back to his office, pulled up the imaging on, this, on his computer, and he said, I want to show you what your scans look like to me. And so he did. He broke it down, which anybody who geeks out stuff like that with me, they're like, my, I love them. So he showed me. We consulted. And I said, all right. So you've effectively scared the crap out of me. But here's the thing. I have a marathon in March <laughs> or April. And I said, and that, no, March. I said, and that's going to happen. I said, and I have a half Ironman in July that I have to, you know, compete in. And then I have my full Ironman in September of next year. So training is going to continue. When can you squeeze in surgery and can I recover so that I can get back to, you know, doing my thing? And so he's like, um, no chance of you rescheduling these. And I said, nope, ain't going to happen. So he's like, all right, well, let's talk to scheduling. So from there, we scheduled surgery. Um, I had my thyroid removed two days after I completed my marathon. So best recovery ever for, for a marathon, by the way. Just Yeah. <laughs> All right. So for those of you wondering, the way to cover, recover from a marathon is narcotics. <laughs> you know, you just kind of get some bed rest in between, you know, some painkillers. Right. And I remember having these discussions with you, um, and I'm privy to that. I don't always know as much about people that I'm interviewing as I know about you and thinking, yeah, like if he could do it later the afternoon of the marathon, that would be great. Like bust out the marathon. Cause those of us who train and train hard and ha there's, there's a drive there that you only understand if you're like that. And also you're afraid and it's a great way to put things off. So you had the surgery and I remember I did. And, I, and I, I didn't feel like if I wanted to, I worked so hard to get to that point of my life because I felt like if I was reborn after my, my gastric bypass surgery because I started testing my own physical limits and the challenge kept going, well, if I can run a mile, I bet you I can run two. And then I bet you I can do a little more. And I can, so I'm, I'm still constantly looking for those thresholds. And once I get a little resistance, I'm like, I bet you I can get over that. So I felt like if I had just gained momentum in my new life, in my new perspective, and I got kicked, you know, pretty hard. And so... I was in, you know, going through surgery, you don't know whether or not the pathology is going to come back um, to your favor or not. So I'm laying down in bed, and that's the worst surgery. It was very painful. Um, uh, worst recovery. I could, I've had two kids. I had my, you know, uh, gastric bypass surgery. That wasn't all nothing. This one was really, really, you know, painful. And the doctor had come in and said that uh, they had found uh, what they call papillary carcinoma or uh, cancer cells within the thyroid. I had plenty of uh, nodules within the thyroid. So the whole gland came out and the lymph node that I had named because he was large enough to see also was removed and um, had cancerous cells in there as well. So um, the unique thing about thyroid cancer is when there's lymph node involvement, that's part of the normal pathology of it. It's not like if there's breast cancer and then there's lymph node involvement. So it's part of the normal, I guess, path, or it's part of, I don't know, in, in any way I say it, it's not going to sound right, but it's, it's not unusual for there to be lymph node activity within the neck. It's okay. part of the thyroid connection. So, um, at that point, they told me that I'm going to have to go on hormones for the rest of my life, a hormone replacement for the thyroid because I have no thyroid now, and that I was going to have to go through what they call an ablation of the area, radioactive ablation, so that way they can kill off any remnants because they can only do so much in surgery. So even though the surgery was done, my marathon was checked off, I still had several races on my calendar to do and I had to deal with treatment and recovery at the same time. So wait, so, um, 
what did you name the lymph node? Fred. Oh, so so it's drop dead Fred, really? Was <laughs> <laughs> evicted. Okay, so you evicted Fred. Okay, that's the only funny part of any of this. <laughs> um, because I, I remember it, and I mean, when you have to have surgery for a reason like this, it's scary and not cool and recovery and the whole thing, even in the best case scenario, and you had the worst case scenario. So that was horrible as your friend, I'm just telling you. I know it was way more horrible for you, but it was horrible. And I've been in, the, I've been in your seat and it's very difficult to yeah. that I was in knowing what, how my journey was impacting those around me. So um, unfortunately I had way too many experiences to, you know, assess. So it, it's never, never fun at all. Never fun, but you know, that's what we do. We, we, we experience and we grow. So the ablation, what was the ablation like? The, that was a radiation. <laughs> that is, um, that's just not a cool thing. However, um, being the geek that I am, I took copious mental notes. So what it is, is it's um, surgery takes out your thyroid gland and then you have thyroid tissue cells that remain in your body. So those little cells could either be proper or they could be naughty. And because they don't know whether they're naughty or cancerous until they start showing symptoms, there's really no way to know. So um, there's a treatment called radioactive iodine. Thyroid cells feed off of iodine. It's their fuel, uh, their, their food. So you have to go through the special diet to deprive your body of iodine intake so that those little cells get hungry. They're starving. And then they kind of go dormant. And then um, after a certain period of time with uh, a, a couple of injections, uh, it kind of wakes them up and they're hyper now. They're really super hungry. So what they've done is they've taken this radioactive iodine pill with that tracer and depending on your pathology report um, and where you are on that spectrum of treatment, the millicuries of radiation would depend. So um, they give you a dose that is effective enough to go nuclear on your thyroid cells and just kill them off, whether they're good or bad. So you might be thinking at that point, well, how does that differ from other radio radiology you know, treatments? And it's only thyroid specific. So no, no other tissue in my body other than the normal, the salivary area in your neck and just things like that um, were affected. So, you know, like dry mouth, things like that, you get kind of get these little side effects, but it doesn't, it's not like going under radiation treatment for lung cancer. It's not a whole body wipeout. So these were little snipers. They went in, they uh, ablated all the remnant tissues and their scans to go through. And I have to do that occasionally to make sure that I'm still, you know, um, I like to call it dark. So on the scan, if anything lights up, then we know that we have some activity of thyroid cells. So my goal every time I go through this process, which seems to be on a yearly basis of diagnostic, um, it's my goal is to always go dark on that scan. And so I knew, I knew you were dark inside. I knew it. I've been dark. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm good. I'm I'm on the path of you know uh, recovery, no remission, no recurrences. I mean, remission, no recurrences. I'm. I'm good. So how long has it been since the first, since the ablation the first time and that you've been in remission? Two years. And the diet is, I mean, people don't understand. There's no way to understand. You'd have to really look up a, a zero iodine diet. And that I remember that being so challenging for you that first time. And I know it's challenging every time, but you've kind of got a system now. You understand it. And so you just go into zero iodine mode for two weeks and you get your shots that are painful. And it's like, you're, you are on fire when you do that. Yeah. Yeah. The first time I felt imprisoned by the process again. So I felt victimized again by a disease that I really never invited in my life. So the surgery took care of one, one part of it, the treatment I felt um, was holding me hostage again. Um, but you just kind of learn 
more about your food and how you need to eat to maintain yourself, you know, health-wise. So it, it's always a learning process, always. I take every, every time I'm kicked down and I fall flat on my face, I always, you know, look at it and say, hey, you know, what lesson do I need to pull out of this? Right. And because of the gastric bypass and the years that you've had with that nutrition, you were, because you, like you like to say, you geek out. So you do, you geek out on things. You're very process oriented and you analyze. And so diet and nutrition had been a pretty big part of your life anyway. And then through training, when you train your body and you're depleting and exhausting it, um, that was another learning curve. And for you, this just, this was just another way to look at nutrition for you. From my perspective, you just broke it down differently and you got really involved in nutrition and helping other people. So you coach that as well. I do. I do. So you took your coaching and your business and your nutrition and your experience and kind of married them. And so that's always exciting to see when you're working with someone who's heavier um, with their diet and exercise, because you certainly you can relate to them because you went through it, but also it just kind of married all these processes for you, which is really great. Right. And that's what I do for fun. I mean, I don't do, I don't do the health coaching or the nutrition coaching for any type of line of business. That's just, that's just sitting down with people, talking, helping them through whatever it is that they, they need to go through. So yeah, the, going through the low iodine diet takes clean eating and makes it like jet fuel. It's, it's just, you trim down so much more that it's just absolutely, it makes um, paleo look, you know, uh, uh, very, very tame. You know, it's a, a very aggressive, but very super healthy way to, you know, go. There is a specific diagnostic and treatment purpose, but um, yeah, it's so again, going through all these on my own, I can either sit and dwell and, and uh, look at all the challenges as a negative, or I can take it on and say, what can I do to not only teach myself, because obviously this is the path for the rest of my life, or, and how can I help others? Um, so what happened with the Ironman? Because you had these races planned when you went into surgery. What happened with that? Well, the first, so um, I finished my, um, my half Ironman. Um, you're given a eight and a half hours to complete. And as you had mentioned earlier, I was going through recovery from surgery, the ablation and the diet, which also restricts your ability to fuel properly or traditionally for those races. So I continued to train and I, so I finished and got my, um, my half Ironman on my belt in under eight and a half hours. So I can like a little over eight hours. Um, so then gearing back up for Ironman, which was two months after my half, I recovered a little bit and then started hitting the ground running again. And on race day, we're setting up, and this was in Lake Tahoe. We're setting up, we're getting ready. I'm at the, at the, at the start line. And for any of those who are, were in that area, we had a really a bunch of bad wildfires. And short end of the story is, is that we got smoked out. The race was canceled due to the extremely toxic air of that smoke coming in from the wildfires. And um, we were all in the water, ready to, ready to go. We were warming up and um, we were two minutes from the, the race, race going. And the announcer came on and said that the race was canceled. So... That was a very interesting thing too, because I've never seen grown men fall to their knees crying because they could not do what they needed to do. So it's a very, very interesting experience. You go through a mourning period after that because you've built yourself up to this, um, this event. And basically I kept telling people it was like being stood up at the altar. You, 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 you rehearse, you get ready, you dress up, you show up, you're on the altar, and then there's no show, no groom. So that was kind of the, the way it went, but I was able to re-register re the next year. So give myself another year of training. And um, so, yeah, so I, I scheduled for that and 
decided I was going to race in that venue again. And you guys were given a couple different options um, when that was canceled because it really takes it takes nearly an act of God to cancel an Ironman. It, it really does. And it's not taken lightly. And no. it was bad. I was volunteering that year and I chose to be at the finish line to volunteer. And I basically chose to be at the finish line for like 500 hours. Cause I, I knew, I think six or seven people, which is a lot that were competing in that one that year. And I wanted to see all of you. I want to put the medal on you at the finish line and emotionally I'm not even the one that trained. I was just going to be the finish line giving you the medal. And it was like being left at the altar. But part of that is that I know the volume of training and preparation. People flew in from all over the world to come to this. Wow. I mean, it's huge. And um, so the, dis the disappointment and the devastation, even when they give you these three options, the none of them are good options. The only option is to do the race. Yeah, it was either going to be um, uh, to bow out completely. Um, and you've got about 2,000 people who are all, all options. So the races that were going to be within a close period of time so we can keep our fitness level up and train or race properly, um, those were all snatched up really fast, which was really great for the Ironman, uh, you know, company to allow us that option. Um, you could either take a discounted refund, which again is another option that's never ever available to you, but they did because of extenuating circumstances, or you can roll it over to the next year. And that's what um, some people decided to do. So you just had to kind of find your place in the midst of chaos. So you planned it for the next year and you trained for the next year. And so then what, what happened? And you're still going through every year you're getting checked, but you're feeling better physically at this point after the surgery and all of that. Yeah, physically feeling great. That last year, um, for the next year, uh, again, just different life circumstances popped up. Um, I put the same events on my calendar as I did the year before because I figured it was a great training. And, um, during this time, I had a, uh, my youngest, I was launching or, you know, kicking him out of the nest, um, trying to get him moved up to Seattle. Um, I also, um, my husband was uh, going on deployments for a new job that he had just um, acquired. And we had made a plan within that year to move out of state. So um, being the one person show, I'm trying to handle all these different, you know, areas, um, which is normally not a problem, really is not normally a problem. But there are, like you said, why do one thing excellent when you can do several things, you know, mediocre. Uh, I found that that's what was happening. So, you know, I, I trained the best that I could. Um, again, I do have some physical or, you know, lim limitations and nutritional limitations. So knowing that, I still kept my race. I did experience a few things during the full Ironman, which was a show. We all showed up. We got to race. Um, I did amazing on the swim, better than I thought I ever could. It's a beautiful lake. Um, that bike course is not anything to joke about. And um, I did actually get sick on the bike. And I had to um, pull over and recover for a few minutes and then eventually um, all those little issues popped up that I was not able to make my bike cut off. So I think I only had, it was my final bike cut off. I was at mile 95, I think it was, and I missed it within under three minutes. Oh. So you know, going back and looking at it, if I didn't take one bathroom break, I bet you I could have made it. But then who knows, I would have never made it on the run. Who knows? So the whole lesson is, is um, First of all, I was happy that I didn't have to cross the line at, at midnight. Um, I was happy to get off my bike at that time because, you know, you're a little sore, a little tired. Um, I did go through the emotions of feeling like I didn't do the best that I could. You know, I started trying to beat myself up, you know, on half-ass training or, you know, you always start going dark. You go dark, deep, fast. But um, it, it, it's an amazing experience. I would not trade it in for anything. I did the best that I could um, with what I had. And again, I have a lot of lessons. I learned a lot about myself and I'm looking for my full Ironman in 2017, so. Yay! That was my next question. So in the process, 
son went to Seattle, son came back from Seattle, uh, son moved out, youngest son, older son got married. Um, yeah, 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 within that time too, I had- I mean like, whole, you know, I'm trying, I, I know I'm selfish, I can't remember your timeline exactly. <laughs> but I mean, I remember all these things happening. You, with Nick's new job, which, and that, he was military for how many years? Uh, 18, he, he is still military, so. Right, he's, he's um, reserve. Right, right. So All right, I'm, right, I apologize. Oh, don't apologize, okay. He, um, uh, he will be retiring within the next year soon, so, um, but yeah, he, he jumped from being a full military position to um, civilian private contractor, pretty much doing the same things that he had before, but requires longer deployments. So. And and stayed guard. So he, you guys, thank God, you come back to Reno because that's where he's, his station is. Um, so in the meantime, his kind of base of operations was in Texas. So you decided you'd move to Texas so that you were at least closer to his base of operations, and you'll do these trips to Reno and stuff. And so huge. And oh, by the way, not only is he civilian now, which is better pay almost always when you go military to civilian in the same job, um, which is great, but he's gone a lot more and it gave you the ability to quit your job and start your own business. Right, so um, knowing that we were leaving um, the state, uh, I gave my notice to my um, employer about three, four months prior to what I normally would have if I didn't decide to take the opportunity to not only finish doing my training for my race, um, pack up my house, sell it, and move you know, into town doing all those things, but I really felt um, that this was the perfect opportunity to um, get my business going. So I left my job in June, and I uh, opened up my business in November. Right, and that was of 2015? 2015, yeah. yeah. So what I want to kind of wrap up with, you've lost two parents, but well, most people have two, uh, both your parents to cancer. You went through all of this with your weight and body image and then cancer and the disappointment with Iron Man, just setbacks and a great relationship with your husband that I can attest to, but where he's gone a lot. So where is your resilience? Where is your triumph? What's your advice? Oh, my approach or my advice is that what you think is going to be, what you think is the worst moment of your life is not. It's going to get better. And um, we, we talk about all these little hits that, you know, I, you know, I've personally gone through and, and everybody has their story. Um, what drives me and what motivates me is that I know what I felt in those dark moments. I know what, what it's like to be hungry to survive. And when you're in those dark moments, you question whether or not you actually do have the resilience to survive. And you do have a fight or flight reaction to it. You're usually, usually you will feel the fear first and sit there. But I feel like fear is just a passenger in my car. And I can either let that passenger grab a hold of the steering wheel and let us veer off the road. Or I can just listen to that passenger do what they need to do and then I can move on. And so my advice would be is to, when you're in those moments, it could be your worst moment at that, mo at that time in your life, but feel, feel it, you know, grab onto it, and then use that to help pull yourself out of that situation that you're in. Survive, choose to survive. Don't choose to, you know, ignore or to surrender because, when you survive, there's strength. When you have strength and adversity, um, you have a story to share. And when you have a story to share, you don't know what your impact is on other people um, and how you might be pulling them out of their deepest, darkest moments of their life. So 
um, I, I, I would say invest in yourself and survive. You can do it. Awesome. Amazing story. Lots of twists and turns and not just one thing that happened and then you had to get through it. You, um, like you said, you were sucker punched a few times in there. And so I love that. I love your attitude. And I love that you took all of your experiences and the job that you had and just put, put all of that to good use. You know, um, it's just a fantastic story. I love it. And I'm so glad that you were here with me today. Thank you. I'm that, so honored to be interviewed by, uh, by, by, by you and watching your journey. Take oh, I love it. Well, I think we, it's important to remember we all have a story and I think I'm always drawn to people's stories that aren't like mine, or even if they started like mine, take that different turn because I can't imagine going through that. And the only way to do that is to give it life. And so thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening in to Jen Taylor Rerouting. Like, share, and of course, comment. I welcome input with attitude. Get a copy of my book on Amazon, Hello, My Name is Warrior Princess, or check out my website, jentaylor.net. And if you still want more, sign up for one of my coaching packages.